Oh, hey, Rebels. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're listening to a free audio-only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show, aptly called The Gun Show. Now, tonight my guest is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science, and I really like Friends of Science because they cut through the media and political hysteria on the issue of climate change to give you the facts and maybe tell you to calm down, pump the brakes, because we are actually not all going to die and there isn't some sort of doomsday clock on the earth. Now, if you like listening to the show, then I promise you're going to like watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show, which I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think it's pretty good. But you also get access to Ezra's nightly Ezra Levant show, David Menzies' fun Friday night show, Rebel Roundup, and Andrew Chapados' brand new show, Andrew Says. It's only 8 bucks a month to subscribe, and just for my podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus subscription by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com to become a member today. And now please enjoy this free audio-only version of my show. Why your SUV probably isn't responsible for the drought in Alberta or the wildfires in BC. And it's not just foreign-funded foundations meddling in Canadian politics, it's domestic ones too, and you're subsidizing them. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, and you're watching The Gun Show. Friends, it's almost impossible to watch TV or consume the mainstream media without being absolutely inundated with what I call fear pornography. Whether the mainstream media is calling unmarked or forgotten cemeteries mass graves, or maybe the mainstream media is scaring you about the so-called Delta variant of COVID-19, or that there's a fourth wave of infections coming, or maybe the mainstream media is making you feel bad about how your SUV is causing British Columbia forest fires and Alberta droughts, there's almost no escape from the constant attempts of the media to brainwash you, to conform to liberal and far left-wing talking points on all of these issues. It's almost uniform from the mainstream media, isn't it? There's hardly ever a balanced or skeptical viewpoint on any of these issues presented in the mainstream media. While the mainstream media simultaneously preens and tells us that they are balanced and nonpartisan, they broadcast literal liberal party talking points as gospel truth. Now, that's why I love the work that my guest tonight does on so many issues, other than maybe the one issue that you've come to know her because of. My guest tonight is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And I think that's where you all know her from. 
And she's here tonight to tell you that maybe you don't need to be so upset that your practical vehicle is burning down British Columbia. But also she's here to tell you that maybe the mass graves of residential schools are not actually mass graves or pits filled with bodies. She's also here to warn us, though, that we need to pay closer attention to the Canadian funding sources of anti-Canadian environmentalist groups operating here in Canada. Here's the interview we recorded Tuesday morning. Joining me now is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science from her cabin in the middle of nowhere. Two gals in cabins in the middle of nowhere talking about uh, the climate, but also about other things. Um, Michelle, you sent me a link to a project that you're working on. It's not really climate science related at all, but as I was saying off camera, it is so perfectly Michelle Sterling because one of the things that you do with Friends of Science is you say, pump the brakes, calm down, stop the hysteria, let's get all the facts. And you are doing exactly that when it comes to investigating whether or not these are unmarked graves or mass graves when it comes to the residential school discoveries. Yes, uh, it's really sad that the journalistic community has not done any reasonable amount of research on the historical context of the mass graves, as they call them. They're not mass graves for the most part, they're unmarked graves. And if you look back in history, you'll find that tuberculosis, TB, was an epidemic of very significant proportions in Canada's history. Up until 1960, it was the largest killer of all Canadians. And certainly it did affect Aboriginal people more. And certainly it also affected children in residential schools. And there really was no cure until the 1960s. So we do see these very high rates of death. Um, but, you know, it's, it's terrible to confuse that with some kind of uh, intentional attack on Aboriginal people. In fact, in history shows that the government made many serious efforts to contain and control and heal people. In the 50s, they were taking thousands of people from the north to sanatoriums where they would be, um, you know, made well for the most part, most of them would be. And one of their rehab projects was doing soapstone carving. So again, uh, in my work, I'm not saying that bad things didn't happen. They did. And in fact, in the uh, post that I recently did on Medium, I referred to people in Ireland and in the States who also went to residential type schools or to, um, to tuberculosis sanatoria where they were abused. So it's, uh, you know, it's really important that we have some context on what happened in history because dancing on people's graves in the media to get headlines is really unethical journalism. You know, and I think you're the perfect person to do this sort of work because again, that is so much of what you do with uh, debunking climate activism. Um, you know, we're told all the time that there are gonna be climate refugees and that people are dying in little island countries off in the middle of nowhere. And that's simply not the case. Um, and so I, I'm so happy to see you drilling down and adding some 
historical context to the discoveries at these residential schools because it, it's not happening at all in the mainstream media and and Canada is being vilified as Justin yeah. Trudeau called us a genocidal state. Yeah, and that's not true. Uh, I mean, there were mass deaths, certainly during the Spanish flu, there were mass deaths and mass graves simply because there weren't enough people to go and dig graves and people were dropping like flies, literally within uh, the course of a day, a person could die. Um, and so, and, and in fact, their whole family, the Spanish flu was horrific. Uh, so much so that people didn't really talk about it after it passed because they were so traumatized by it. And very similarly with the residential schools issue, a lot of people were so traumatized by being pulled out of their communities, either to go to residential school or even to go to a TV sanatorium. Um, there's one recorded um, uh, testimonial from a family saying that we didn't know our brother. He was put into a sanatorium when he was seven and returned home when he was 13. We didn't know who he was. He didn't speak our language. He didn't understand our customs. You can certainly understand that. That would be very traumatizing and, and impossible to make sense of. So I'm hoping with um, the uh, article that I wrote and the research that I offer from other researchers in that historical period, I hope that this will help people um, better understand what happened then and why and the context of the time. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, as I read it, I thought, boy, you know, this, how many times do we have to let the government tell us how to live our lives before we figure out that that's a terrible thing to do to people where we allow the government to control our families and who we can interact with and how we behave? Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, there's some strong overlays with what has happened in the world with civil liberties in the last 16 months. Uh, lessons we should have learned a long time ago from other atrocities. Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. Now, uh, sorry, Michelle, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, go ahead. Finish your thought. <laughs> oh, well, uh, just to note that, you know, TB had a very strong social stigma, very mm -hmm. much like what we see today with issues between vaccinated, unvaccinated, mask wearers, not mask wearers. And this type of stigma even exists today in northern communities where TB is quite rampant. But people are even afraid to get a diagnosis because then they may become outcasts in their own community, which of course leads to the ongoing spread of the tuberculosis and lack of treatment for that individual. So, you know, and it's funny that the government is so willing to put money into searching up graves when these are real living people who need help now. And, uh, you know, it's not that the dead shouldn't be honored, but honestly, if you can save people now, let's do that. You know what an excellent point, Michelle. Um, uh, moving from that, um, there's an, another sort of top of mind issue um, here in Alberta. Um, if you open a window, it's smoky outside. Um, and you know, if you walk across the grass, it feels like AstroTurf. We, we're in a drought, but there's also fires in another province. Um, and apparently, according to climate change activists, again, more fear-mongering, um, these things have never happened before. Alberta's never experienced a drought. There have never been forest fires in BC. This is all absolute climate change. And my comfortable SUV is the bad guy here. Well, of course, all that is nonsense. <laughs> One of the, the biggest fires in Alberta and BC was in 1950 called the Chinchanga 
Firestorm. There's a really great book by Cordy Timstra uh, published by the University of Alberta Press. And this fire burnt uh, 3.4 million acres of land and the smoke pall was seen around the world. The moon was blue, the sky was dark, people thought the end of the world had come. And that was just the smoke from this one fire that went around the world. Um, so it certainly is an ongoing phenomenon. It's called wildfire season. You're right. <laughs> there's a wonderful uh, resource that everybody should look at called Fire Smart Canada. And uh, Fire Smart is also broken down into all the provinces because there are differences in each province. But it offers you some insights as to how to protect your property, yourself, and your community. So people should look at that and take that advice. Um, it's not... Uh, um, climate change. It's um, an element of, uh, of climate, which is called La Nina. There's these alternating uh, cycles of ocean temperature, which are El Nino and La Nina. And both of them have very significant weather effects, but they're short term. El Nino is usually maybe up to two years, but uh, La Nina is usually a bit shorter. But these cause conditions that can exacerbate drought um, for the prairies in La Nina conditions. And there's a paper by, um, or a few papers by Ray Garnett and uh, Madhav Kandekar that people can look up to learn more about that. BC had many lightning strikes this year and many firebugs as well. About 59% uh, of the wildfires in BC last year were caused by people. 42% on average are caused by human interaction. That doesn't always mean arson. You know, sometimes it's a spark from an ATV, sometimes negligent camping, sometimes a cigarette, but uh, sometimes uh, sparking on, um, you know, a branch sparking on a power line. Uh, so that may not be the, the uh, cause of, you know, a, uh, an individual fault at all. It may be the power company or it may simply be how that tree grew and nobody noticed. But um, those are the human interactions that cause it. And uh, of course, you know, people go to the bush a lot more now mm -hmm. and many more of them are not very well trained. <laughs> you know, we used to have Boy Scouts and Girl Guides mm -hmm. where people learned about safe camping. And now people just sit at home, you know, on their Xbox or whatever, hey, let's go camping. But they don't know about how to put out a fire properly or, you know, things to do in the woods that keep you safe. Yeah, so, it, it, uh, sorry, go ahead, please. Uh, oh, well, you know, so these are some of the things. Also in BC, they've got tons of dead trees from the pine beetle infestation. And if they were really serious about protecting their population, they would spend a few hundred million on clearing out these places, especially close to um, uh, human settlements. And also, if these climateers are so keen that there's going to be, you know, global warming, and they've been spending billions for the past few years on it, why didn't they put up more, you know, containment centers for people to go to when there's a heat event? I mean, you couldn't be prepared for this. And right. Actually, if you want to look up about the heat dome, Cliff Mass, who's a professor uh, in the States and is an expert on Pacific Northwest climate. He's written a great uh, blog post on it. Uh, I think we saw a lot of this happening in California a couple years ago, where, you know, all the activists were screaming about climate change. However, it has a lot more to do with fuel load in yes. the forest and forestry practices, which have been inhibited 
by environmentalist-induced laws and regulations. Yes, and also, and particularly in California, there's an interesting phenomenon. You know, if there's a fire, then all that area is cleared. Then what happens, there's rain in the winter, then whew, you have this sudden profusion of light shrub. Uh, and then it, the hot season comes and it dries standing. So this is what's called, uh, it creates cribbing. And this is just like kindling. So, you know, one little spark and it all goes up. And of course, add to that, especially in California, the Santa Ana winds. So you get tremendous winds there, like our Chinook winds. You know, you've got a fire and that kind of a wind. Good luck stopping it. That ember storm is just going to take off. You know, it's, it's really interesting, as you rightly point out, if the environmentalists think that my comfortable SUV is causing global warming and because global warming is happening, then there's going to be more forest fires. Why haven't they done anything to make forest communities more resilient to the forest fires they promise us are coming? They haven't done any of that. Instead, they just stand on tragedy to push uh -huh. their agenda. Right. I mean, putting up a wind farm or a solar panel is not going to save your life. But what might be a useful application of funds is to cut a fire break around some of these uh, at-risk communities, you know, like a kilometer wide, mm -hmm. and maybe turn that into even a tourist walk. You know, you could do something constructive with it as well. But, um, you know, make sure that you've got the forest cleared back. And another thing, you know, a lot of people who live you know, people move, say, in Kelowna, they love to, uh, well, not just Kelowna, but all over Alberta, too. Yeah. But people love to move to these wooded communities. I mentioned that because my brother had moved to uh, West Kelowna uh, at one point, and he had a beautiful big house with a swimming pool and surrounded by trees, right? Right up mm -hmm. against the house. Well, that's number one no-no, you know, in regard to keeping fire, wildfire from destroying your property. Get those trees back, clear all that junk away. Don't have stuff on your deck that's flammable, you know, cause it's, it's like kindling. If there's an ember storm, it just needs a little touch on that and that uh, flammable material and it's gone. So there are lots of things people can do to protect their property, but they're, you know, again, let's put up a wind farm. No, let's just deal with the practicalities. So there's actually a good video by the National Association of Fire Protection in the States on your home can survive a wildfire. Very interesting to watch because lots of simple things you can do to really potentially protect your home. Not a guarantee. Yeah, a lot of that work was done here in Alberta too after the Slave Lake fire. Um, we did a, a the province did a large scale examination of how that came to be and um, how best to protect our forest communities. I don't think it's so much the same as in Southern Alberta, you might get hit by a grass fire in town there, but in the North um, where I live, where, where the grasslands are crashing into the boreal forest. And then beyond that, um, the, the communities in the boreal forest, these are forestry communities by and large, they are surrounded by forest and I know a lot of communities in the wake of the Slave Lake fire made steps to make their communities a lot more safe and to communicate the lessons that you just did to homeowners in these communities, because everybody loves to live with nature. Um, mm -hmm. But you do need to realize that you are, um, you need to live in concert with nature and sometimes nature means a wildfire. That's right. And also in, that was called the flat top fire complex review, yeah. that report that the government did. One of the things they found is that a lot of people who'd moved from the city to an acreage assumed they could call 911 if there was a fire. 
Right. Not realizing that 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 uh, fire department may not even serve your community and they're going to take an hour to get there. You know, so if you live in a rural area um, of any kind, you have to coordinate with your neighbors, you know, some stopgap measures for containment or evacuation. You have to be prepared to deal with it yourself until or unless, you know, the real resources can get there. And if they're fighting a really big fire on the other side of the mountain, they can't come. <laughs> they don't have the people. So, you know, and I think. Um, you know, when I when I spoke in Grand Prairie a couple of years ago, they gave me a beautiful historical book there of the hand painted watercolors of uh, of uh, the region history. And one of the things that they noted and what you see in the pictures is all the pioneers had stuff cleared right away from their house, you know, they there was a huge clearance to the forest. And that's how a lot of them survived these wildfires. Um, so, you know, the People have just forgotten or they don't realize living in modern times, I think you can just Google it, how to put mm -hmm. out a wildfire. <laughs> you know, you got to be prepared on the ground. You know, it's funny, last time I was in Grand Prairie, somebody gave me a book on Bigfoot. I think, <laughs> you know, we all uh, we all have our things, you know. <laughs> um, Michelle, I wanted to ask you about um, another large foundation meddling in Canadian politics, and I guess to some extent international politics, um, we all know about the Tides Foundation. I think, not we all, but uh, I think watchers to these sorts of things, we all know about the Tides Foundation and how they have their tentacles into everything. But there's another big foundation, the McConnell Foundation, mm -hmm. that is dumping money at climate activists and other companies. Um, and at Friends of Science, you guys have been sort of documenting much of this. Well, uh, we're just uh, going through some of the Canadian funding because, of course, with the Alberta Inquiry going on, one of the arguments of uh, some of the people who are supposedly named in the uh, Alberta Inquiry, they say, oh, you know, we hardly got any money from foreign donors. We got most of our money from Canadian donors. Well, that's not entirely untrue. <laughs> As, uh, so we ran across a few things that... Um, like for instance, the tax subsidized McConnell Foundation gave a grant of $10 million, but to who? To one of the world's largest companies, BlackRock. Weird. Black That's weird. That's very weird. But at the same time, they were also funding a group called the Strathmere Group. And who is that? Well, that's an organization of the top, say 12 environmental groups in Canada. It was formed by Marlo Reynolds, when he was part of uh, Pemberton Institute. And uh, so McConnell funded the Strathmere Group, which as a group is said to have over 358,000 members, 420 staff and annual budgets totaling over $50 million. So the Strathmere Group then um, is noted in Boothroy Communications Online as uh, being uh, Greenpeace, Pemina Institute, World Wild Fund. And it says that in 2014, we planned and facilitated the Toronto Skills Building Workshop, Campaigns and Communications 2014, where directors from Canada's 12 leading environmental organization learn from leading market researchers, journalists, and organizers, and agreed to work on shared frames and messages in advance of the 2015 federal election. 
So this suggests that the media are accepting the framing of issues from ENGOs in advance of an election period. And consequently, there's little public debate on climate change or energy policies. And this is all part of a new blog post that we put up last night. And in that post, we also show that the most recent IPCC uh, climate models are running way too hot. And even Gavin Schmidt of NASA, GISS, admits that. And he says they're just wrong. So that's where all this catastrophe climate thinking is coming from, these wrong, faulty models. And interestingly, that these big Canadian tax-funded foundations are funding these tax-subsidized ENGOs to promote a very specific message that pr promotes a certain sector, which is like the renewable sector. Like, you know, for instance, we see um, Sandy Garasino on um, National Observer. She's made quite a few comments about the Allen inquiry. Well, one could say she also has a vested interest in the climate catastrophe scenario because she's the grandmother of Elon Musk's baby. Her mm -hmm. daughter is married to him. So the climate catastrophe scenario is one of the main uh, principles upon which the push for electric vehicles lands, right? It, it, there is no reason to have electric vehicles unless there is this proposed climate catastrophe scenario. So all these things are intertwined. Anyway, I invite people to have a look at that um, blog post that we just put up. Now, you glossed over something that you and I both know, but maybe people at home have forgotten. The mm -hmm. founder of, uh, it's the Strathern? Strathmere Group. Strathmere. I wanted to say Strathmore. Um, <laughs> the Strathmere Group, Marlo Reynolds. We have to remember that this is not nonpartisan activity. Marlo mm -hmm. Reynolds went on to work for Catherine McKenna, when she was the environment minister. So these people are taking advantage of our charitable tax structure here in Canada mm -hmm. to push for partisan liberal talking points. That's what's happening. And that's why that Alberta inquiry is so important. Yes, yes. And uh, again, the Alberta inquiry, as I understand it, is not intended to make a legal decision. It's intended no. to simply follow the money and say, well, here's the money that's coming and going to these different groups. And then other people, I assume, I don't know, I haven't seen any of the drafts or anything, but um, other people can then say, oh, well, that's interesting because when this money went there, then this kind of thing happened in the market, you know, but we'll have yep. to see how it turns out. But that is why it's so important because again, tax subsidized organizations using tax money, taxpayer money to put taxpayers out of work, in my opinion, that is completely wrong. Yeah. And one of those um, members of the Strathmere group, Pemina Institute, if you go onto the federal government's grants website, it is nothing but a series of grants headed from the federal government to the Pemina Institute, where the Pemina Institute then uses that taxpayer money to push partisan talking points that put Canadians out of jobs. That's correct. Yeah. In fact, uh, recently they got over 700,000 from Natural Resources Canada. I don't mm -hmm. know what for. They don't have that level of expertise, in my opinion, say that people who once worked at the NEB did, where they did highly technical reviews. Uh, at the same time, in 2018, they got another about 300,000 US from the Ener Energy Foundation of the US. 
So, you know, the foreign funding hasn't stopped to these groups. And uh, that one was to promote clean, clean energy. Uh, so, um, you know, the, this is really skewing public policy in Canada in a way that you and I as citizens, we don't have access to that money. We don't have the same kind of platform. We don't have that access to government. Even our own elected officials don't have that kind of money and influence because they're not meeting with the media for a big uh, um, pre-election um, conference and uh, communications workshop to set up the framing common to 12 huge environmental groups with the media in attendance. You know, that's oh. another thing that I think people should be aware of that the media, while it presents itself as, you know, we're nonpartisan, we watch the watchers or whatever, they are meeting with these large scale environmentalist groups who are funded by the liberals. You've got staffers from these large scale environmental groups working for the liberals. And then you've got the media telling them how to communicate the issues because the media is yeah. not nonpartisan. They're in there like a dirty shirt too. Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, you have to think that some of these large um, ENGOs like Ducks Unlimited, mm -hmm. which apparently is not named in the Allen Inquiry, even though they get tons of money. But uh, one thing that's interesting, they and I think it's CPAWS have been running very heavy advertising yep. campaigns on all the TV stations. So, you know, if you're an advertiser, a media outlet, a journalist, and you see, wow, these guys do have a lot of money to throw around and to advertise. And there is such a thing as native advertising now where um, sort of advertorials are placed, yeah. op-eds are placed as if an actual op-ed, but it's really a paid sponsored content. And mm -hmm. maybe in tiny letters, it says sponsored content. Yep. But, you know, these groups can afford to do a lot of that. And groups like us who rely on the media to be fair and open, when we send in a rebuttal, it never gets published. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to post it on our blog. And this has happened time and again. So, you know, there is no fair balance happening at all. And again, yeah. you just mentioned something. Sorry to cut you off, Michelle, but you mentioned something that, again, you just glossed over because you and I both know, but maybe everybody else doesn't know. You mentioned CPAWS. CPAWS mm. is an arm of the, I think it's Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, oh. where basically they are funded by American and large scale uh, foreign uh, activist groups, large charities and foundations. Their main goal is to turn the entire eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains into a park spanning yeah. from Yellowstone to Yukon. And if you want to know who is exactly responsible for putting the bug in the NDP's ear to close off public lands to people who use them, like me, for quadding, hunting, fishing, mm -hmm. that's CPAWS. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I wrote an article about that in 2013, although I don't know if Y2Y was in progress then, but I called it the Great Eco Wall of Canada, yep. because that's effectively what all these different ENGOs have done in some way. They've laid claim to certain parts of land so that you can't put your pipeline there because of the spotted owl, and you can't put your pipeline here because of these kind of berries, and you can't yep. put your transmission line there because this land is sacred to someone, and not always to the actual band but some new nominated, uh, you know, well, yeah. now I, I'm a certain kind of First Nations person outside of the context of my tribe. And I say that this is sacred. So, you know, it's never ending. 
the different kinds of excuses they come up with for blockadia. And then of course there's real blockadia. Um, people should know that Extinction Rebellion is calling for another road blockade of Canada, road and railroad blockade of Canada in October to completely shut down Canada. Wow, these people yeah. never end, but I guess the money flowing to them never met, never ends either. And I think when we finally find a way to cut off the foreign money flowing to them, maybe they'll have to go get real jobs. And domestic. Yeah, and domestic. Thank you very much. Now, uh, lastly, before I let you go, because you've been so generous with your time, um, Friends of Science, you guys have been sort of digging down into Mark Carney. And um, I think a lot of people might know the name, but they don't really know why they know the name. Um, but he's recently announced that he's not going to officially run for Canadian politics. However, his hands are in so much that the Liberals are doing, and, and not just here in Canada, he sort of has international influence. Um, mm -hmm. But why don't you give us a Coles Notes version of who Mark Carney is and why we need to worry about him? Well, uh, Mark Carney worked for Goldman Sachs for 13 years, uh, then he moved on, he became the governor of the Bank of Canada, then the governor of the Bank of England. When he left there, he was appointed UN Special Envoy on Climate Finance and Action. He's been advising the Prime Minister, uh, he's not a registered lobbyist, even though he's also at the same time the vice president of ESG or vice chair of ESG, Environment, Social and Governance for mm -hmm. Brookfield. He's on the board of Stripe, which is a uh, digital uh, uh, money transaction uh, firm, fintech firm. He's uh, on the board of PIMCO. He's, uh, he's on several boards. We've got two videos about him that are based on research done by Parker Gallant. And Parker is also a former banker. So this man is very, very influential, completely embedded in climate change, as is his wife, Diana Fox Carney. And they're both very influential players, and yet they seem to have these pecuniary interests as well. So, um, you know, those are not the rules that ordinary people have to play by, and uh, people should keep an eye on that. Michelle, Tell us how people can support the work that you do, because you guys at Friends of Science, you're just this little sort of society, and you are acting against these huge foundations and environmental groups that, as you point out, um, get all kinds of domestic money, public money, and foreign funding to spread a message of fear and, well, doomsday. Um, you offer... A, a more fact-based approach to that. And you also offer people some, I don't know, anxiety relief, <laughs> I think is the right thing when you're just inundated by the TV telling you that the world's gonna end either by COVID or by climate change. You offer sort of the flip side of that. You tell the other side of the story, which here at Rebel News, we like about you guys. Tell us how people can support the work that you do. Well, you can become a member or you can donate. You can go to our main website, which is friendsofscience.org. Um, you can follow us on all of our social media. We're on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Instagram. Um, we have another youth-oriented plain language website called climatechange101.ca. And um, we'd love to have you participate in our uh, conversation. And, you know, if, if you're not rich at the moment just share our stuff join in the conversation we're not interested in dogma we're interested in climate science interested in insights uh, and um, ener energy policy 
uh, cost-benefit analysis. And I will say also that we are very interested that Minister Wilkinson has yes. called for an adult debate on climate and energy policies, and we think that that should happen right now. Yeah, I imagine though that the debate is not going to be a debate at all, but just two people agreeing with each other nodding because they're not going to allow people like friends of science to be involved in it. I don't think I'll be shocked if they do. And I, and I encourage it because I can't wait to see um, some of the scientists that you work with run circles around the other side. But that is precisely why they probably won't have you there. But we can continue this debate ourselves. The public exactly. can open the debate. The media can open the debate. If the government will not open the debate, then we, the people, have to do it. And we have to demand full cost benefit analysis of these policies because otherwise everyone will be broke. There will be heat or eat poverty. There will be cruel and unusual punishment imposed on Canadians. It's not a laughing matter anymore. It's not a matter of deniers or compliers. It's a very serious issue and we have to take action now. You know, that's one of the things I, I love about Friends of Science is that you take these big, huge, complex issues and you turn them into what they actually mean for your family. Because I think a lot of times the politicians and the environmental activists, they rely on the fact that they use overly complicated explanations and terms to mean uh, a tithe to the climate gods to change the weather in the form of a carbon tax. They, they call it a carbon levy. They, they use these broad, huge terms because they think that Canadians aren't smart enough to see through what they're doing and you speak directly to Canadians through your YouTube channel, which I cannot recommend enough. Thank you. Yes. Michelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll have you back on again very, very soon. Um, enjoy the rest of your summer and uh, I don't know, stay out of the smoke, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Sheila. All the thanks, best. Michelle. I think the world needs to calm down and chill out. If we've learned anything from the climate crisis and now COVID, it's that politicians need to have you in a constant state of fear and anxiety for you to accept the absolutely irrational and expensive things they want to do to you all in the name of saving you from the crisis they won't shut up about. And that what they're trying to save you from might not be a crisis at all. The media, though, they're all too happy to help the politicians scare you. On the flip side, as long as the mainstream media remains terrible and one-sided, I guess, I guess, I've got job security telling you the other side of the story they don't want you to know. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here or wherever in the same time next weekend. Remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.